from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Everybody, thanks for stopping by Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. My name is Spaz. Got another great episode for you here. I am going to be interviewing the great Peter Lee of Guitar Gangsters. Now, if you're not familiar with the band, definitely stick around because I think by the end of this episode, you are going to be in love with them just as much as I am. So I'd like to thank you again for stopping by and Let's get this party started. Inspired by the original punk rock movement in 1976 and 77, Peter Lee and his brother Phil joined forces in a variety of bands over the next decade. Operating under names like Embryo and Jump Squad, the Lee brothers continued to keep the punk fire burning even when radio and booking agents had all but given up on the movement. In 1988, Peter and Phil were asked by Mark Brennan of Link Records to write and record two songs for a compilation his label was releasing. With two recordings quickly in the bag, the Lee brothers didn't have a name for their new project, so Mark Brennan christened them Guitar Gangsters. And at that moment, they began a 30-plus year journey that continues to this very day. Their debut album, Prohibition, was released in 1989. Since then, they've released a total of 10 studio albums, a few live releases, and a compilation album. A handful of these releases were issued by Captain Oi Records, the influential label started by their earliest and most vocal supporter, Mark Brennan. Their most recent album, Sex and Money, produced by the legendary Daniel Ray, was released in 2017. While they spent their first three decades as a trio, Guitar Gangsters are now a quartet with the addition of Ed Roulette on guitar and just released a brand new single entitled Being Stupid. With a sound that blends classic rock and roll with the Ramones, the Boys, Stiff Little Fingers, the Saints, and many other original punk bands, Guitar Gangsters remain one of the most overlooked bands of the genre. Their dedication to their music and their unwillingness to be anything but their very best says a lot about just how special this band is. Guitarist and vocalist Peter Lee was gracious enough to spend time with me talking about their music, their back catalog, their lineup changes, and so much more. Here are the highlights from that interview. Welcome to the Blanket Fort, Peter Lee.
Before discussing the history of Guitar Gangsters, I'd like to delve into your early days. Do you remember the moment that you decided that you wanted to be a musician? Or was that a series of events that sort of pointed you in that direction? Well, um, my elder brother and I are quite were quite close in age and we were we were quite close growing up that's phil who plays who plays bass and um he and i kind of shared the same the same sort of friends and we were into the same kind of music listening to i guess um uh early 70s rock and glam rock and um our dad worked in a, a college and um he mentioned one day they had guitar lessons um, at the college and were we interested? And we must have been about 14, 15 at the time. And um, and we just loved any music that involved guitars. And it was, so it's a weird thing that, you know, the, why is it that, you know, when you're a teenager and you, you're kind of, that window opens to music and films and art and programs that... Why, why do guitars sound so exciting? I, you know, it's a really odd thing. But we were both attracted to it, and um, <laughs> we both went along to these guitar lessons, and it was kind of classical guitar. So, you know, it was so far away from what we wanted to do. It, it wasn't true. Um, but um, we stuck at it for a few months, and then we kind of we didn't sign up for the next term, but we carried on, and. Um, you know, I bought a guitar and um, I think I probably progressed a bit quicker than Phil and um, and we loved it. And then and then punk rock happened. I cannot overstate the impact that it had on teenagers over here at the time. first punk music that I heard I had a Saturday job in a shop and I was working in the stockroom and there was a rock station a rock program rather on the BBC on a on a uh, Saturday afternoon you got in those days you used to get two hours of rock once a week and that was on Saturday afternoon and this was like progressive rock from the kind of mid 70s and I suppose they didn't know where else to play this in the schedule but they played I'm Stranded by the Saints and I just stopped still and listened to this this record. And I thought, this is I've never heard anything like this in my life. And then a, f- a few days later, Phil and I were in the in the Scouts, the Boy Scouts, and we did lots of adventurous things. But one of the guys in the in the Scouts was our patrol leader, and we had monthly meetings at the patrol leader's house where you're supposed to talk about scouting things. But we just played records. He played the first album by the Ramones. And we just sat there in disbelief, listening to the Ramones. And it kind of changed everything. And then hearing the Sex Pistols, and you think, did these guys, guys land from, from Mars? Where did, where did this music come from? And then you kind of realize that actually the New York Dolls were doing it a bit sooner. And um, yeah, the, it, had a, it did actually have a path. Um, and... You know, the Ramones were playing that speed because they were too scared to play any slower. <laughs> and, um, you know, but at the time when in the UK you had you had one music radio station, really, 
you had no commercial, no commercial radio to speak of. You had three TV stations, two of which were the BBC. And all your musical um, exposure was controlled by the BBC. And looking back on it now, it was such a conservative time. And you know, there were very few songs that you heard on the radio that weren't about love and dancing. And then suddenly you hear songs about life and real stuff. And it, and it just, it, it changed the world completely. And <laughs> almost, almost the day before punk, you could walk down the road in a pair of straight jeans and the traffic would stop. You know, it was that shocking to see somebody wearing a pair of straight leg jeans because it was only flared trousers. That's all, that's all people wore. And, um, and it, was, it was that profound. And um, we're still feeling the ripples now, I think. It, it brought so many changes in art and music along with it. And, um, and looking back, there are so many acts that we think of now as nothing like punk. I mean, Elvis Costello, Tom Petty came over to the UK and Tom Petty was considered punk. I, I can't work that out. He got caught up in it. But in, in amongst all this time, Phil and I also saw a film called American Graffiti and our musical taste suddenly took a, <laughs> a left turn, which was really great because it kind of, it gave, it gave us an insight into rock and roll and doo-wop and Phil Spector and the origins of, of punk and rock and roll. We've always had that sort of slight rock and roll, 1960s melodic pop influence in what we do, even, even, even today. always the plan to play with Phil or was that just the way it happened? By virtue of the fact that I was probably progressing slightly quicker than Phil, um, four strings on a bass guitar seemed uh, easier than six strings on a, on a guitar. So he decided he'd, he'd play bass and I'd play guitar. And we were playing with a couple of other guys at school and we kind of chased the punk rock thing for a couple of years. But of course, anyone that picked up guitar when punk rock happened, by the time they got a band going, it was all, it was all too late. Punk rock was on the wane, and if you went chasing gigs and record deals with a punk rock sound, um, you were immediately dismissed as you know, last year's thing. And there was a period in the early 80s where punk rock became almost illegal. You, know, you couldn't get gigs. The whole style just looked dated. And we'd kind of formed a another band called Jump Squad and we morphed into a kind of soul stacks kind of band. We had a brass section and I, I have to say we were probably guilty of trying to chase a trend and trying to trying to guess where the next thing was going to come from and trying to be there when it happened. But it didn't take you long to realise that unless you're actually playing the music that you love and you believe in and that's your reason for playing it. It just doesn't work. And you might get away with it for a song or two. But when our lead singer, we were a four-piece at, at that time, 
um, when our lead singer at that time decided to call it a day, we had a contact in a guy called Mark Brennan, who ran a, a small record label called Link Records. And he was trying to resurrect the kind of street rock. He didn't want to call it punk, but it, um, he was trying to create a new, a new wave of guitar bands. So he put together a compilation album of like-minded bands who were kind of struggling around the kind of London pub and club circuit. And he was short of a couple of tracks. So he said to me, Pete, can you write a couple of songs and we'll put these songs on the album? So he paid for Phil and I to go into the studio and we didn't have a drummer at the time. So we, we recruited Mickey Fairbairn from the business and he played drums on our first two recordings. And I sang lead vocal for the first time. And those two tracks, which were When the Razor Cuts and Everybody Wants to Be My Friend, they went on that compilation album called Underground Rockers. And they got such a good reaction that Mark Brennan came back to us and said, look, you better record some more tracks and we'll put out an album. And Mark had come up with the name of Guitar Gangsters because it suited the, the style of the album and it suggested kind of a gang and it had guitars in the title and you know so we were kind of a created band <laughs> that's when the razor cuts that's when the razor cuts down that's when the razor cuts down deep that's when the razor cuts that's when the razor cuts down that's when the razor cuts down I wrote another bunch of songs and we recorded those and the, the philosophy was it's just got to be simple it's got to be three chords it's what this is the kind of stuff that we'd have loved to listen to and it was you know we were strongly influenced by bands like the boys and the Ramones and Stiff Little Fingers so we kept it really simple and it was recorded it was written quickly it was recorded quickly and that first album went out and did really well that songwriting process uh, has it changed over the years or does each song develop differently each time you write them? I have to say that over the years, it's become more lyric led. So many years ago, I would I might think, oh, this is a nice chord progression. This is a, you know, I've got a little melody here. Let's glue some subject matter to it. But over the years, it's kind of turned around to having a sentiment and the sentiment dictating the song. It's funny that when, when you start out in a band and you start out songwriting, particularly, you know, in the punk genre, you're overwhelmed with reasons to shout and scream and voice frustration, but you don't have the musical repertoire, the musical kind of box of tricks to, to do it justice. And then as you get older, you find that you've developed that box of tricks, but you know, you're not the angry guy that you were in your early twenties. So you then start to pick and choose your subjects a bit more carefully. Prohibition album came out 30 years ago. Does it feel like it's been that long? Because you've outlived nearly every punk movement or resurgence that has come along since then. It's, a t it's been a two-edged thing because the most common criticism we've had over the years is that we've been too pop for punk, if you know what I mean. So, um, and our timing has been dreadful. Um, you know, we, we started out with, when Prohibition came out, um, hardcore punk was just starting to, to dominate the scene 
and um, yeah, everything was getting faster and faster. And it, that wasn't a direction that we felt comfortable with. We were still trying to focus on melody. we discuss sex and money a little bit and the new single if i just gave you an album title would you be able to just give me a brief thought on it we've already talked about prohibition uh so the second album was uh, money with menaces we just played a support tour with stiff little fingers and we had a bunch of songs written and we were very confident went into the studio and had all manner of problems in the recording process and i have to say that's my least favorite album that was such a missed opportunity because we'd built up the profile of the band with the SLF tour and um, and this new album came out and I think we had a lot of strong songs on the album but the recording just didn't do them justice. Then, three years later, in 1994, came Power Chords for England. That was recorded at a time when the industry was on the cusp of, of going from analogue to digital. <laughs> and, and we had the joys of recording on an eight-track quarter-inch, uh, no, half-inch, sorry, tape, coupled with an ADAT machine, which, is, which was recording onto videotape. That way you could end up with 32 tracks, I think it was, and some great songs, the recording quality... I think let it down and also personally I was suffering some vocal problems and I was I was advised to go and get singing lessons and I listen back to that album now and I think what on earth was I doing you know a year later I've forgotten a lot of the singing lessons and I was just back to singing as me but on that album yeah <laughs> yes yeah, <should> we move on <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wheeler came out in 1997. Uh, what are your thoughts on that one? Over the years, we had two drummers. We had Steve, who was joined us from our very early days. He didn't play on the first album, but when we started playing live, Steve said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come back, and he started playing with us. After Power Chords for England, he called it a day, and we recruited Gianfranco Scalia, a uh, Sicilian drummer, and I think the the performance and the and the recording quality took a step up when we recorded Squealer. And in fact, you kind of, while Steve was a, was an outstanding performer, I think he'd be the, be the first to admit that in the studio, technically, he wasn't as good as Gianfranco. And with a good drummer in the, in the band of that caliber, you, you can do simple things and they're effective. It's a bit like, you know, if you're playing football and you haven't got a good goalkeeper, you haven't got a chance. <laughs> well, I'm going back and we're 
Road to Reality came out, and what are your memories of that album? Road to Reality was recorded with three different drummers because it was a collection of songs from that were recorded over quite a long period. And we had a, a slight concern that, you know, did we want to align ourselves with an OI label? Because we quite clearly are not an OI band. But in fairness, you know, it did us nothing but good and it opened a lot of doors for us. And Mark was really supportive. He, he, he said to us not long ago that, that we were possibly the most blagged band that he'd ever known. And, and so we were saying, you know, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, well, all the bands that were on his label that would come into his office to see him, if there was a new Guitar Gangsters album out, they would say, yeah, let me have a copy of that album. <laughs> So he was he was giving away his stock to the the business and the Cockney rejects and exploited and anyone else that he'd released. Um, that's our claim to fame. The sun comes up like it always does. It's no surprise to the three of us because we've seen the TV show a million times. Everywhere the streets are clean and compliment that perfect scene. Another Day in Pleasantville. What are your memories of that album? That was largely inspired by our trip to Los Angeles. And the, the title track, Another Day in Pleasantville, was written about that trip. And three of the songs were recorded in Los Angeles with the producer, Rich Mauser. And he was just so cool. And we recorded in his house. So Steve set up the drum kit downstairs in the hallway and the control rooms on another level in his in his his house and we were recording with the windows open you could hear the traffic and the birds and you know we said don't we need the windows closed and he said no no it's fine no it's, it, they won't you won't go down to tape and that was such a relaxed recording process and we were really we were thrilled with the outcome it was really good The next album is Let Em Have It. Undefeated closes our live set now. That turned out to be a really strong song. Going to London as well. That's that's the second last song of the set normally. And um, this was the first album that we recorded with Pat Collier, who was the, the original bass player of the Vibrators. So we, we've now recorded three albums with Pat Collier. We've grown as... As he's grown, each time we go into the studio, the process becomes easier and more effective and 
but um, for recording guitar bands, he just knows his stuff. But if I can't be what you want, next record would have been Razor Cuts, the best of, uh, and that included a couple unreleased tracks and singles tracks. And Were you pretty happy with that compilation? Um, yeah, I think the, the difficulty is that if you ask three different people what should go on the best of Guitar Gangsters, you'll get three complete different answers. The biggest problem was, look what we've left off. <laughs> the medics arrived and did a few tests. What you need is What are your thoughts on that record? Touring seems to generate a whole kind of period of creativity. And this was an album that was recorded just after a tour in 2008, I think. Yeah, we toured with T.B. Smith and The Lurkers. And um, so When the Big Man Fell, that, that's, that's a song all about Arthur from The Lurkers collapsing on tour and um, ending up in hospital. I was going to see him in hospital and he's sitting up in his bed with his leather jacket on. <laughs> I like you better when you're trashed And your gyroscope is wrecked I won't judge you for the 16 beers you've next. I like you better when you're trashed The Class of 76 uh, came out in 2011. What are your memories about that record? That was a really positive experience. We felt the whole album was really punchy. The, the sound was good. Um, Gianfranco, who'd been in the band, had left the band, come back. Steve had played on Badge of Honor. We had a number of periods where Steve retired. Gianfranco came and joined us. Steve retired again. Gianfranco came back. Then Gianfranco retired. <laughs> Um, so it's been a kind of revolving drum stool, but the um, class of '76 was—we felt that was kind of unrelentingly powerful—and um, for pretty much all of it, we got it right. It was recorded as we heard it in our heads. We also had the confidence to try and branch out a bit, and there's a kind of acoustic number on the album, and there's a, a five-minute song with a storyline to it. We tried a couple of other things. We, we also tried, there's a kind of uh, a nod to rockabilly in um, Monster in a Nightclub. So yeah, we, were, we were very pleased with that album. You can't kick a ball in platform boots The girls like boys in velvet suits Daddy's got matches, let's 
2017's Sex and Money, your 10th studio album, recorded in Brooklyn with Daniel Ray. What was it like working with him? Okay, so that, that came about through our booking agency who had been booking the Dictators. We, we'd seen the Dictators and I knew, I knew that Daniel Ray was playing for them. And, uh, and I, I said to our booking agency, you know, perhaps he'd, perhaps he'd be interested in producing the next Guitar Gangsters album. And she said, well, why don't you ask him? <laughs> and that had never occurred to me. Um, so we had a chat when, he, when they were playing at the Borderline in, in London. And um, he listened to the, uh, to the demos and said, yeah, if you can get over to New York, I'll produce the album. It was, it's the first time we'd worked with a producer and it's no good me asking somebody to produce the album and then telling him what I want. You've got to put yourself in their hands completely and go with it. And we had, we had complete confidence in, in what Daniel was about. We weren't making decisions amongst the three of us in the band. It would be, Daniel, what do you think of this? Is this right? It, it, you know, um, so we'd defer to Daniel every time. And, and that, in a way, that, that, made, that made our job so much easier. <laughs> what I would say is that we we got to the end of the recording process and he said, right, guys, wh- when are you going to come back to um, New York for the mix? And I said, no, 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 we, 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 we've got to do the mix. We've, we finished this album and then we go home. And he said, but there are only two days left. And I said, yep, we've got to mix it in two days. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a guy that probably spends a week or two mixing. <laughs> So, um, yeah, we rattled through it in two days, and oh, we just love it. Did you ask him for Ramon stories? Yeah. <laughs> There's some great stories, um, and which, which I probably shouldn't repeat. But one thing that had, had mystified me for years and years, and that was, um, why did Joey Ramon sing the way he sang? Where does that vocal style come from? I asked Daniel this, and he said he was trying to be English. He was trying to be Ray Davis. He was trying to sound like the Kinks. And I guess that's what you get if you start off with a, a New York accent and you, <laughs> you try to sing, sing Ray Davis. Yeah. Since the release of Sex and Money, you've added a fourth band member, uh, guitarist Ed Roulette. What inspired that decision? Okay. So when we started, we didn't, it wasn't a, a deliberate intention to be a three-piece. We, we never really thought about it. Being a three-piece just happened because I could sing and play guitar. Phil played bass. We had a drummer. We went playing live shows. Why did we need a, another guitarist? Over the years, generally wrote the songs in order to be able to play them live as a three-piece. Perhaps there have been one or two occasions in the past where we thought, mm, maybe we should have another guitarist. And then you think, well, oh, think of the hassle of trying to find the right person. A guitarist who's not only the right player, but perhaps more importantly, the right character to fit in. And and I, and I was this this came about late last year when I was I was thinking of um, another musical project that that would have involved two guitars. 
And I saw this guy advertising in a, an ad column online as a punk blues guitarist. And I thought that sounds interesting. So I got in touch with him and we started a dialogue about the projects. And then when he realized that I was in Guitar Gangsters, he, he said, I want to play for the band. And I said, Ed, thanks very much, but we, we're not looking for a guitarist. And we've thought about it before, but it's not really what we're looking for. He said, no, no, I really do. Let's have a rehearsal. Just, we'll just do two or three songs and um, with no commitment, just see what it sounds like and, and then I'll leave you alone. And um, so I spoke to the other guys and they said, okay, let's, let's, let's try it. And he came along and he, he'd learned six songs. We rattled through six songs and we were just blown away. It's been a challenge because you don't want you don't want to start to change the songs. We don't want to take songs from Prohibition and add a different guitar part. And and if you're not careful, you, if you have two guitars attempting to play the same thing, it can kind of muddy the the whole affair. So we've we've had to had to work on it. Um, we were away on tour in April and played 16 shows with Ed, and we had nothing but positive reaction to his addition it makes a difference visually as well and and the guy just fits right in he's a great guitarist uh, so it's from our point of view it's, it's been completely positive that single called being stupid is this sort of a one-off for now or can we expect a new album anytime soon you make any change to a band you get a new drummer in or in this case another guitarist and suddenly everyone ups their game and everyone starts thinking about the future and new stuff and yeah definitely we're talking about a new material and a new album so yeah that will happen well, what would be the best way for listeners to keep in touch with the band and get updates on your current activities? Facebook is the best means of communication and to find out about shows and releases. And that's uh, Guitar Gangsters London. So facebook.com forward slash Guitar Gangsters London. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. My name is Spaz, and I'd like to thank Peter Lee for hanging out and chatting with me here in the Blanket Fort, and I appreciate you 
for listening to our conversation. Remember to like, share, comment, and do everything you can to help promote Beach Blanket Fort Bingo and Guitar Gangsters. And until next time, smell you later.